It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Nayanika Mathur, author of the wonderful new book, Crooked Cats, Beastly Encounters in the Anthropocene, published by the University of Chicago Press in July 2021. Dr. Mathur is Associate Professor in the Anthropology of South Asia at University of Oxford, and her research and teaching interests in, are in the anthropology of politics, development, environment, law, human-animal studies, and research methods. Crooked Cats is her second book. Her first book, Paper Tiger, Law, Bureaucracy, and the Developmental State in Himalayan India, was published in 2016 by Cambridge University Press. Nainika, I believe you've been on New Books Network before to discuss Paper Tiger. So welcome back. It is so delightful to have you here today to discuss your new book. Um, I can't help but gush about Crooked Cats. It has to be one of the most memorable books I've read in recent times. So thank you for writing it and thank you for making time to speak with me about it. Thank you so much for having me here, Sneha. And thank you so much uh, for the time and the care and the labor you put into making this podcast happen. I'm really excited to be here. It's totally my pleasure. So let's start off with maybe you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. Yeah, sure. You know, so I think in um, looking back, it was very much a process of trial and error. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in politics at Delhi University. And while I liked politics, I was somehow not fully convinced by it. Um, So I switched disciplines for my master's uh, when I went to the Delhi School of Economics to do a master's in sociology. Um, And I sort of completely fell in love with sociology, what we call sociology in India, but is called social anthropology in the UK. Um, I mean, they they sort of match onto one another quite well there. Um, And I just sort of loved those two years. And, you know, I was just sort of uh, just fascinated by I think the core method that I thought I was learning at that point, you know, which is basically obsessed with looking at very, very tiny encounters or intimate social relations and sort of building up larger worlds from that. You know, I I love the way in which through sort of these um, beautiful fine-grained ethnographies, you could answer some of the big questions of the world, you know, of the times. What does it mean to be human? How does one understand power? 
etc. So I, I think I really love that that, that method, which uh, to me is really important in anthropology, um, the ethnographic mm-hmm. method, I guess. Um, but having said that, I sort of did dabble in other things. So I did, went on to do an MPhil in development studies um, in the UK. And then I also worked with an environmental NGO in Delhi for a year. Mm-hmm. And I sort of still found myself completely drawn uh, back to anthropology. And I found myself compelled by anthropology as a way of understanding the world. So I came back to the UK and I did my PhD in anthropology. And then, you know, after quite a few years of sort of precarious postdocing and short-term teaching contracts have landed up where I am, um, you know, I, I mean, and I feel uh, sort of very privileged to be able to say that I'm now mm-hmm. a professional anthropologist, so to say. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's my story. I, I, I think it would be remiss of me to not mention sort of the oodles of luck as well as the class and caste privilege that I've had, which has carried me through this entire process from, you know, getting my degrees and the scholarships that I did and even getting the the job that I have now um, and, you know, being in this extremely privileged position at this time of global precarity to be in a tenured post as an anthropologist. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my story. It's not very exciting, <laughs> but, but it is what it is. It's very exciting and thanks so much for putting it the way you did, especially speaking about your caste and class privilege because I think we just don't talk about that enough and so I'm so glad that you mentioned it. Um, so simply put, Crooked Cats is an exploration of what you call beastly tales, which are stories that are populated by humans and non-human beasts of all types and their intricate entanglements. The book is also an analysis of the governance of beastly cats and it's such a refreshing contribution to the anthropological studies of the post-colonial Indian state. But before we dive into the book, I thought I would invite you to say a little bit about how this research project even emerged. And equally importantly, who are these crooked cats that the book is named after? Yeah, thank you so much for asking this question, uh, because this origin story of how this book happened uh, is actually very critical to the entire beastly tale that is crooked cats. So it goes back a long way. It goes back actually to the winter of 2006, when I had just begun my doctoral fieldwork in a small Himalayan town called Gopeshwar, which is located in the North Indian state of Uttarakhand, um, not too far from the border with Tibet. So I had just literally just started my doctoral fieldwork and I was then working on bureaucracy, on the welfare state, on everyday practices. Um, and I was working within the sort of government offices at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, you know, I, as I said, I went with a totally different project. And then suddenly one day, one fine November morning, uh, a man-eating leopard took up residence in the town. And she sort of announced her arrival quite dramatically by attacking a woman in broad daylight. Um, thankfully, this this person survived the attack. but And I actually knew her quite well because she lived right next to where I was uh, living at the time in Gopeshwar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of... that. Uh, that event, but also what happened after that, because this leopard was then in Gopeshwar for the next three months uh, and she sort of haunted it and she, you know, she established what was called locally a reign of terror mm-hmm. and we lived under this reign of terror. And that profoundly, that experience of living for those three months under the reign of terror of this leopard of Gopeshwar profoundly shifted something. It shifted what my research became. Uh, it shifted the way in which I sort of came to understand life in the Himalaya. It also actually, for my for my early work, it, it changed the way I also thought about that project, about bureaucracy, about time, about law, about temporality, uh, about state failure. Um, and so in my first book, Paper Tiger, I 
this this particular leopard has a sort of a walk on part you know she she was quite central to the title itself of the book and she featured prominently in the final chapter of the book which is very much about uh, law and temporality and conservationism um so i thought at the time that that sort of you know that was the life that the leopard had in my intellectual work so to say um and but i still was intrigued by by her presence by what happened by all the sort of the political social ecological things i was seeing around me i was particularly intrigued by narratives uh by you know what i thought of as bark stories or like big cat stories that people were constantly relating to me so much so that during that period uh, i started maintaining um i had my sort of my my field notes for my you know quote unquote official <laughs> defil project and then i had my personal diary uh, but i was so obsessed with this leopard that i also began to maintain what i called my bag diary now bag means leopard or tiger basically means big cat in in hindi uh, and so I, i still have this very very precious uh, leopard diary of mine um and and a lot of the questions a lot of the um the issues that i explore in crooked cats actually emerge very strangely uh, to my mind from that winter of 2006 um i should sort of go on and explain why i came back to this project so i got uh, as you know i'm interested in state and governance and politics broadly and i was working uh, on on well on on state practices subsequently i was doing my research on it and so in 2015 i went back to uttarakhand for a longer extended period of field work um and again i was working on something slightly different or i thought i was working on something slightly different when one fine morning and again this was very soon after i arrived in dehradun so now i was in the capital city of uttarakhand rather than a small himalayan town uh, up on the borderland um just the same incident happened again so basically a leopard came and killed a young woman uh, this was a young teenage woman uh, just and again quite literally down the road from where i was living at the time uh, and this created a big you know um, i mean it was a big event in dehradun at that point because this isn't very normal that you have leopards walking in and killing people and devouring them and it was for me this uncanny mirroring of what had happened almost a decade back you know in my original field work my first field work um it, it was you know i still when i think about it i sort of you know feel the hair stand up at the back of my neck thing because it was so similar in so many ways except that there were some marked differences this is a big town the space in which this happened uh, the narratives around the leopard uh, and what happened with her which i you know i uh, and again it was a it was a female leopard uh, who was the manager and uh, you know so there were all these things which i basically so i was pulled back i was almost like willingly plunged back into this world mm-hmm. and you know in a way from 2006 onwards i had not been able to stop thinking about that leopard of gopeshwar and i had been doing sort of little research here and there and little field trips here and there but i didn't actually think of this necessarily as a book project i didn't think it would take the shape that it has eventually taken um but when i look at this final product which you know this beast that is this book now i see that so many of the questions are guided by what happened in the, those three months in 2006 and what i recorded in my in my bag diary you know the the questions that were sort of left hanging in the air even after she was hunted down and the reign of terror ended have come back but they've come back in a very different way because i now have you know 15 years of field work experience or 15 years of research experience around it and i've worked in very different sites i've sort of explored it through very different lenses mm-hmm. but it goes back to that originary tale so so thank you for asking about that what is a crooked cat um 
so i i was i was and still i am very uncomfortable with the term maniter uh, largely because of both the colonial as well as the post colonial statist manner in which the term is deployed the way it is also used by conservationists uh, the way and of course the obvious sexism of it that it's just to you know men um but also i think i'm uncomfortable with the fact that the term maniter doesn't square up with the many many stories i have heard and recorded about crooked cats right and mm-hmm. it doesn't sort of it doesn't to me like you know i think a term should capture the sense of what it's meant to be referring to and i don't think manito does that i mean i i recoil from it from many reasons um and i i kept thinking about what is a better how does one describe this phenomenon and i i go back to again to some early conversations i had on uh, on these big cats which um become crooked right and one of the ways in which they're often described in a way these narratives sort of proceed is that you know most big cats and this is the vast majority of big cats in the world um are simple the straightforward the stay on you know the right path but some of them for some extremely inexplicable reasons become crooked they become teda as they say in hindi so otherwise these leopards are seedha sada the simple the straightforward but something happens that makes a few of them and this is a very small amount a small number of them who suddenly become crooked who become teda mm-hmm. so why do they become crooked what is it that's led to it what are the repercussions of this crookedness how do we understand it in this moment in time you know given that we're living on a planet in crisis how do we understand how they regulated governed how do we understand how humans come to have intimate entanglements or intimate emotions towards these crooked cats um mm-hmm. is something that you know i became interested in so so yeah so this is what these crooked cats are and you know in a way even in the title itself one of the the leading questions of this book is still in it like what makes a big cat crooked right yeah i mean thanks that was that, that was so interesting like i was hooked uh, the story about how this this book came about and you also write so beautifully about it in the book in um, in many ways and through the chapters and it was really nice to hear you kind of sum it all up uh, in this way um so i was very taken by something you write early on in the book about how crooked cats the book sits uneasily with the production of a, of an overarching and authoritative explanation that is often expected of academic writing you also say that beastly cats that are the heart of your book are often discussed by your interlocutors through a range of modes of engagement speculation guesswork case studies archival analysis biographical studies and even fantastical and mythological renderings So I appreciated how you connected this fluidity of your interlocutors' modes of knowing to your own approach in terms of methods and research design. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your approach towards collecting material for this book, the kinds of people involved, and what the various sources of data, so to speak, were. Thank you, Sneha. So you know, I think one of the ways in which I think about um, the method of this book, uh, and the method actually of this book is quite. is quite central for several reasons that uh, i hope we'll discuss over the over, over this conversation um i also think that this has something to do with the fact that this is a second book uh the fact that it isn't uh, a classic monograph in the way say my first book was mm-hmm. um it, the fact that a lot of this material that's been collected for this you know the narratives that are the, at the core of it or the or the sort of stories that are what i prefer to call beastly tales that infuse it have been collected over a long period of time at different places at different moments mm-hmm. uh you know and i think that that sort of lends 
there is a way in which I could have woven them into uh, a singular narrative about, for instance, climate change, or for instance, um, the failure of conservationism, or about extinction. Um, but I, I just like, you know, having sat with this material for so long, having lived through this reign of terror myself, uh, not just once, but, you know, a few times, having um, deployed quite a range of methods to actually um, get primary mat material, but also having read very, very different kinds of literature on it. So I've read a lot of politics and fiction and, you know, geography and wildlife biology and conservationism, conservation science, etc. Mm -hmm. to, to understand crooked cats. Um, I found it really hard to to uh, to weave the story together into something that um, can give us a singular argument or that can give an overarching argument in the way, for instance, I think I I was trying to achieve with my with my first book, where I felt like I had a particular argument on, for instance, state transparency, on neoliberalism, on on paperwork, on bureaucracy, on materiality, on affective practices, etc., where. I felt compelled by my own uh, by my own material and you know my mode of thinking. Whereas here, I didn't find that, um, and I think there are several reasons for this. So I think one is, of course, the nature of the fieldwork and also the very diverse kinds of academic literature as well as non-academic literature that I've consulted for this or I've read for it. Uh, I think it's a long durée. It's the fact that. Um, I did do circumscribed fieldwork in a small field site for an extended period of time. Yes, I did do that, but I also did, you know, random things like go to visit zoos in, in different mm -hmm. cities or go to wildlife sanctuaries or just hang out in a dhaba in the middle of nowhere and talk to someone who's seen a leopard and then ask him what his feeling was when he saw a leopard. You know, so I mean, it's it's that it's the range of interlocutors that uh, are in this. So I've worked with wildlife biologists, with conservationists, with bureaucrats, forest guards, victims of attacks by big cats. Uh, I've also interviewed quite a few poachers who I sort of knew in uh, up in Uttarakhand. Um, you know, with photographers. I mean, all sorts of people. So they're just there's a very different kind of uh, work, uh, you know, of interlocutors here, again, who I couldn't sort of club together. I think the other thing about this is that, you know, and this is sort of something that continues to fascinate me about studying the non-human, um, is how big cats are actually very elusive, right? They're not, uh, you don't really see them. Uh, you don't really, if you're lucky, <laughs> you don't really see them. Right. Uh, you don't really get to, you can't have the kind of relationship with uh, a tiger, uh, you know, in the jungle next door or, or you know, heaven forbid, in, in your village or your town in the mm -hmm. same way you can say with uh, with your dog or with cats or with horses or even large uh, other large predators like alligators or polar bears, which are much more sort of available to you materially, right? So that's a notoriously elusive. Um, and how how then does one study this extremely elusive uh, subject? I mean, I remember one of the early reviewers of what then became this book uh, asked this question. Uh, he or she or they said, you know, how will you do this ethnographic work given that you cannot quite interview a tiger? Um, and so I think this is why, you know, the, the elusive nature of it, the variety of sources, the, uh, the, the variety of secondary literature, the long time span has led to... Um, to an argument which is uh, centered actually quite profoundly on uncertainty and unknowingness. And, and, and I, 
for me, one of the big arguments of this of this work or something that I think is quite important is that we have to take this uncertainty seriously. Because, of course, uncertainty is a defining feature of life and death in the Anthropocene. It is the way in which we experience the world where we don't know what the future might be, but, you know, quite frankly, what, what is happening even now in this present, right, in this pandemic moment. We're just surrounded by this unknowingness and uncertainty. And I wanted to take that seriously. And, you know, when I think about the, the, the beastly tales of the narratives. And I think about the ways in which these stories were related to me. They were highly speculative in nature. Even those people who were very convinced that they know exactly why this cat is behaving the way it is, they still offered it as a speculative, slightly unknown um, theory, right? Um, there's also a lot of emphasis on individual big cats and their biographies and their lives. And those are then used to explain why something happens, why something doesn't happen. And this focus on individual biographies actually, um, which I think is a key methodological thing in, in animal studies and you know quite important for my work here, um, also disrupts a neat way of knowing because you know animals like two two white tigers can have very different biographies. They can have a very different life that is sort of sketched out for them. Um, so I think you know this this was the way in which this book proceeds that it it builds upon stories, myths, gossip, rumor, gut instincts, WhatsApp forwards, Facebook posts, newspaper accounts, material remnants such as, say, the grave of a tiger cub. It builds on people's personal experiences, but it also builds upon, um, you know, articles which are published in nature and science journals. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's sort of, it, it comes out actually arguing for understanding the speculative nature of knowledge. It argues for uh, for a different form of writing, it argues for trying to understand the non-human other through a range of sources um, without saying one is superior to the other or without uh, putting one on a pedestal above the other, but trying to sort of weave them together into uh, into into a wider story. So, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure if that fully answers the question, but you know, I think I can see even in my answer to your question on the narrative, there is um, there is a form of uncertainty. But I would like to think of this as sort of as a sort of a productive uncertainty, as sort of uh, as playful speculation, um, which is still hopefully rooted in in quite material and political circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this it it addressed the question really, really well, and I think we get a sense of. Um, the way you were conducting fieldwork, I felt like I was with you as you were describing some of these um, some of these instances that that led to uh, say someone meeting someone at a dhaba or like uh, going to the grave of tiger cub. So it was actually really really vivid. Thank you for that. But uh, just going on that vein about the range of explanatory explanatory narratives that attempt to answer the question of what makes crooked cats crooked like that's one of the themes that you tackle on early on in the first chapter of the book itself and you show how various diagnoses sit alongside one another with their attendant frictions and overlaps so can you tell us a little bit about how these um, different theories that attempt to make sense of why certain big cats turn on human prey like how do they manifest these different theories and what does paying attention to this range of theories tell us 
Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I've had such a wide range of theories sort of presented to me over the past 15 years of why a crooked cat becomes crooked that mm-hmm. I haven't even, even been able to include all of them in the book. Like even right. now, you know, after the book was published, I had, which was just last month, I've had some somebody write in to me from Uttarakhand saying, have you talked about, you know, this reason that they become crooked? And I was like, ouch, actually I haven't because no one really <laughs> talked about it at that time. So I was like, I'm sorry, I have not, but you know, thank you for that. Um, yeah. but, so, but you know, and there's just so many, again, to go back to your previous question of speculation and uncertainty, you know, we still don't know why, but there are so so many theories that are put forward to explain yeah. why big cats become crooked. Um, and so for the sake of simplicity, what I've tried to do is I've divided them into sort of three very broad orders of explanations, mm-hmm. uh, political, biological, and climactic. Um, and uh, this is not to say that um, any of them are you know, it's not to say that they're separate from each other because the political and the biological or the, the climate change ones all sort of, you know, bleed one into the other. But I did it for the sake of some sort of clarity and some sort of ways in thinking about what is it that is most important in certain theories to explain why big cats become crooked. Uh, and why might it be important to pay attention to them, as you ask, right? What what does paying attention to these range of theories actually tell us as uh, as you so compellingly asked us, uh, have asked me. So um, let me just sort of briefly say that, you know, something that was very, very important in the theories is the role of the state with its policies of management, conservation, regulation, uh, with its laws, with its programs, with its individuals, with its culture of, you know, of work with its inequalities within the state of, you know, how they regard certain individuals in certain places and how they don't uh, regard other people. Um, so the, the state often came up as an explanation for why, uh, you know, big cats become crooked. So they range from things like saying that, you know, because the state has um, given this entire forest on lease to these, uh, to these, uh, to these evil capitalists, uh, mm-hmm. these this tiger has nowhere to live. So now what is it going to do but come into our village? Uh, and there it encounters us and it comes for us. Uh, you know, uh, they've talked about things like how um, due to species extinction, and they don't necessarily put it as species extinction, but they'll say things like, you know, a particular animal has been hunted out of of, li- of uh, existence because of state policies, because of corruption, because of uh, the fact that, you know, Uttarakhand is also located on the border with Nepal and China, and it's easy to sort of um, smuggle animals through this whole area um mm-hmm. these the, the normal prey for these animals for tigers leopards don't exist anymore and hence they turn on humans but again they sort of talk about uh human human relations here they talk about uh, power and they talk about politics and they talk about state forms you know there's a lot of reference to say the colonial state and the hunting practices as well as the, con- the lack of conservation practices during the British Raj, but there's also a huge amount of criticism of the sort of exclusionary conservationism that you see in the post-colonial state, especially after the 70s when uh, you have these slew of wildlife protection acts coming in, which serve to protect big cats in particular, you know, as these charismatic animals. So mm-hmm. there's that. Um, there's also a lot of talk about there's some sort of versions of these arguments which are sort of political in nature, which are much more conspiratorial um, in 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 the way in which they put forward. So, for instance, something that's told that's told to me very often, especially in the Upper Himalaya, is that these crooked cats are actually have actually been sent up by a rapacious Indian state that wishes to finish off the Baharis or the mountain people because it has historically been against them. 
so you know there is a there's a direct element of uh, the state actually using bicats to kill particular kinds of humans whom it doesn't care about or it actively wants to finish off mm-hmm. um, there's also a lot of talk about neglect of the states so, you know neglect in the way in which they poor governance but also neglect in the ways in which they'll send up old uh, tigers and leopards that have become very old in zoos in you know urban areas like say delhi and lucknow and there's no place to house them they just release them into the mountains without paying any heed to the fact that actually in the mountains you have humans who live there um so there's sort of a range of political explanations which are used to talk about why you have something like big cats but i should say that in in chamoli district uh, this clay the district in which gopeshwar is located where i worked there was i mean the political aspect of it and the way in which the state operated was constantly stressed and for me that is absolutely fascinating not just because it tells you about um you know the way in which people regard the state or the relationship that the mountains have with the indian state or have had historically with the indian state whether it's the british uh, state or you know the colonial british state or the post colonial state but also for me it's interesting because a lot of the things that they were talking about are are true in the sense that mm-hmm. you know I, i think that the indian state is not sending up you know uh, crooked cats to uttarakhand mountains to kill the mountain people but what they do indulge in a lot is this practice of translocation uh, translocation is something that's actually come to south asia from uh, early experimentations in in africa and kenya and uh, particularly in kenya in fact where you see you identify a so called problematic animal a problem animal and you capture the animal and then you take it somewhere else you take it out of the area that it's in and drop it off somewhere else in the hope that then this particular animal will not trouble these people again the problem right. is when you do this to leopards or tigers which are very um you know they have these very strong homing instincts and also very territorial they try to make the way back home uh and in doing so they encounter humans but also when they go back they find that sort of the social kin structures and the political structures in their original home have been disrupted by the entry of other big cats and that leads to conflict i mean those are the re- reasons for this which have been actually very powerfully explained for india by the wildlife biologist vidya atreya um mm-hmm. where she has really shown uh, she and her col- collaborators have really shown how dangerous translocation is and how it leads to a massive spurt in conflict uh, you know what they call conflict between humans and animals so mm-hmm. that's sort of one the second is sort of uh, this biological or genetic thing where it's argued that the parents of a big cat especially the mother if she was used to human flesh then it is assumed that the cub will as people in the mountains would tell me that become automatic man-eaters uh, that's the phrase that was used that you know automatically that's an adam core automatically it's going to be crooked um the other sort of uh, sort of ways in which people have talked about uh, you know sort of more biological things is or like not necessarily biological but sort of genetic or more um quote unquote natural ways of uh, it is that sometimes you know there's a biological flaw there's a innate, there's something wrong with a particular animal that makes that animal turn on humans when actually it shouldn't like other humans there's also sort of a very new this is a very recent psychologizing discourse that is gaining ground where uh, big cats are sort of believed to possess a psyche and interiority that cannot be dis- disturbed uh, and so they can be depressed or most commonly the word that's being used now is traumatized um mm-hmm. talk about uh, you know big cats ha- suffering from ptsd the talk of them being severely depressed i mean i've i've seen cases where uh, they've been prescribed antidepressants like human antidepressants 
mm-hmm. in a hope that that will quote unquote cure them of the crookedness. Um, there's also a, you know a slightly problematic practice of um, of castrating man-eating leopards in particular, like crooked leopards, uh, in the hope that this would somehow make them less aggressive. Uh, and this is this is again a very recent kind of entry, especially this thing of medicating uh, big cats with things like antidepressants. Uh, mm-hmm. And the talk of of trauma, depression, etc., is sort of more recent. But uh, so that's that's another form of explanation that's there. But I think the one of the most sort of important orders of explanation, and which is not divorced from the political or the the so called biological, is really the those explanations where they make direct links between climate change and interspecies discord. Now, I should say within this, there is the whole conservation world, like World Wildlife Fund or the IUCN or, you know, other sort of conservation NGOs that have a particular narrative uh, and a particular understanding of why um, climate change or biodiversity depletion, species extinction uh, are, chain- are leading to animals uh, actually coming more and more into conflict with humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one kind of discourse within it. But the one that I'm more interested in sort of exploring uh, is sort of the more ethnographic or the anthropological discourse around climate change, where um, a lot of my interlocutors, you know, I mean, I begin, I open with this one, you know, one of those random chats at a dhaba in, uh, in Uttarakhand with someone who talks about when I asked him, you know, why did why did this leopard attack you? He, he was the victim of an attack by a leopard. And he said, you know, he basically had this long, long, we had a long, it's a recorded interview and I sort of listened to it quite often. And uh, I've heard it so many times, I almost went back to him by now. But he, he, he sort of said to me, he said, you know, he told me this like range of reasons. And there were political, economic, ecological, social, geographical, biological. And, you know, and basically, I think what he was saying, he didn't necessarily put it in the same words himself. But he was really talking about the Anthropocene. He was talking about how humans are changing the world, how they're changing natural environments, how they are the ones who are inflicting grievous harm on the planet, uh, especially on big cats. And, you know, he talked about, uh, he did talk about climate change. And it was just sort of, so what I'm interested in this book is actually I'm more interested in this second kind of narratives, which are coming from my interlocutors, from this very vast and diverse range of interlocutors who talk about uh, what we would call, quote-unquote, climate change, but we're basically talking about how social, ecological, political relations in this world are changing dramatically and the kind of effects that's happening on their lives. Uh, And I want to put these discourses, these beastly tales front and center. And I want to put them there as not somehow separated out from these other accounts or as, you know, slightly exoticized musings of these Himalayan residents and their relations with humans. But actually, I want to put them as, I want to take them seriously as stories that have so much to tell us about this moment in time, that have so much to tell us about this planet in crisis, that Mm -hmm. have a lot of bearing on our understanding of what the climate crisis is, how we came to this point, and also hopefully what we might be able to do to rectify or at least try to rectify somewhat uh, Mm -hmm. what happens in the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Wow, thanks. That was uh, that was that was very compelling. Um, and you sent a chapter two along a similar question that vexes state officials, frustrate hun- frustrates hunters and conservationists alike. Um, that how does one even identify this crooked cat, right? It's in a setting where multiple big cats coexist, and you spoke a little bit about it earlier. Um, but you outline how the irony baked into this effort is that there seems to be no way of incontrovertibly identifying a big cat prior to killing it. Uh, so that's the irony that you identify, which I thought was so interesting. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed the ethnographic depth of this chapter as it unpacked the several methods through which hunters, state officials, conservationists, etc. try to tackle this question of how does one identify a big cat. So can you speak to some of the ways in which bureaucrats attempt to identify crooked cats um, and contrast it with the embodied and visceral practices that characterize the effort on the ground? You know, I feel like this question of beastly identification has suddenly become so widely known thanks to the film Share Me. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that too. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, it was like uh, so funny because Share Me, I think, came out the day my book was published and I was like, oh my God, like, oh, this is chapter two. You know, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is um, because, you know, as, as for people who might have seen the film or not, not seen it, like that film also centers upon uh, a so-called man-eating tigress and it's... Uh, also like one of the aspects of it is really sort of the bureaucracy around it and you know all through the eyes of this wonderful divisional forest officer um and uh it outlines the difficulties with correctly establishing the true identity of a crooked cat before killing her um so yeah so i mean absolutely so you know i think in this in this question of the identity of the big cat it's been something that really lies at the heart of what i call the governance of big cats or you know non-human governance it's quite central to it uh and it's very central to this whole process of understanding crooked cats it's central to the process of how humans govern them or regulate them it's 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 actually a key key aspect of it uh and what is interesting in this is that in you know in some of the other chapters and some of the other aspects that i explored in this in in my book i feel that the difference between what the the guy the bureaucratic work is or what bureaucrats and forest guards and uh, you know forest officers etc are thinking about and what is actually happening on the on uh, through other actors within this whether it's a poacher or it's a conservationist or it's a biologist or it's a photographer there is a way in which they intersect that they talk to each mm-hmm. other uh, in important ways but in this question of the identification i found a really sharp disconnect between what uh the text and the legal guidelines and in particular what uh the sops which are the standing standard operating procedures lay out vis-a-vis what actually happens in practice during the hunt or before you're trying to sort of capture the big cat and i should say actually that much as i enjoyed shirni my big um problem with that film was that it somehow uh it it made light of these other ways of knowing the animal mm-hmm. uh, and i mean while the film was very good at showing the the sort of the toxic masculinity of the hunter and you know the the class and the caste based problems with with hunting as a practice and you know the whole aristocratic so called aristocratic connections and mm-hmm. I mean, just the toxicity around it they also did not there was also a way in which it um, scoffed at other ways of knowing big cats which departed from what the sops are saying So mm. you know and i feel like in practice these sops don't really stand because it's just not possible at some level so the standard operating procedure you know has uh, which is really uh, linked to clause 111a of the wildlife protection act of 1972 uh, has a sort of 
says that the animal must be ID'd. That's the word. That's a word that's used. It has to be ID'd. You have to ID this animal before it is captured or tranquilized, and definitely before it is shot dead. Um, and so, in the SOP, they will say that you can obtain or you can establish the ID of the quote-unquote aberrant animal uh, that is causing loss of human life through the committee. So you have to co- commit a, <laughs> constitute a committee for the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly, it's the Indian state, so we yeah. need committees. Uh, I mean, I guess it's true even of academia, right? We have committees. <laughs> <for everything. laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Maybe it's just big bureaucracies, yeah. Um, but they're like, establish this committee that will ID the animal. And in this committee, you will go through it through purely scientific means like camera trapping or um, if you can't do camera trapping. So camera trap is this sort of, like it's a camera that can pick up uh, it operates on sensors and it's able to pick up movements and it can take images. And the idea is that you take so many photos of all the leopards or all the tigers in a particular area that you're then able to identify them separately from one another. So you know that this is T1, this is T2, that's T3, like you give them names, you give them numbers. Uh, you know, there's a whole other thing to be said, actually. I mean, sorry, this is a bit of a digression from your question, <laughs> but there's a whole other uh, a story to be written about the naming of big cats and why... Uh, mm-hmm. State says that give them numbers, don't give them names, because the more mm-hmm. you give a tiger or a leopard a name, you become too emotionally involved with it, right? Um, so that's why a tiger is T2 or T12, because then somehow we will not be so emotionally involved with them. But if you call a tiger Avni or you call a tigress Sneha, we will immediately set up affective relations with the tiger. And that's not good because we have to be objective and scientific, you know, vis-a-vis this animal. But anyway, sorry. So to go back to the question, it is that so you, you know, they talk about DNA profiling. They say that you should collect pieces of hair or scats of of the animal, etc. And then do a DNA profile and then sort of, you know, set up a database through which you can identify the animal. Now, I should say that this might be possible in the plains. It might particularly be possible for tigers because they're much fewer in number and they're bigger and the more territorials occupy, you know, the dominant in certain spaces. But this is not really possible for leopards, especially in the upper Himalaya, where camera trapping is hard, but also leopards are very lithe and, you know, and there are lots of them. I mean, they and they sort of look <laughs> just like each other. <laughs> so this is... Um, you know, I think so. The SOPs also assume that the same sort of law can be uh, can be put for the entire country. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Maharashtra or you're in Himachal. It doesn't matter whether it's a tiger or a lion or a leopard. It doesn't matter what the local state capacity is, what the resources are at hand for the forest department. What just really matters is that this is the law and deploy it. And actually, that's not how it happens. So how does it really happen in practice? And I'm going to talk more about leopards, because I have most experience working with leopards. I mean, not with leopards, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I have the most experience in the upper Himalaya, in particular in Uttarakhand and a bit in Himachal. Now, direct sightings are very, very rare. Camera trapping is very difficult. I have really not come across any sort of DNA profiling because it requires resources and time and uh, sort of a particular kind of state capacity that is not often available. What really takes place is, um, and probably the most effective way of identifying a big cat, especially a crooked cat, is through an analysis of pug marks. Uh, so, you know, you go to the sites at where the kills have happened and you analyze the pug marks, you take a little imprint of it, or you make a cast of the pug mark, or you just study it and take lots of photographs. So you're also able to identify, you know, is this a male or a female? How old is it? Uh, you know, what might it weigh, etc.? 
you sort of get a sense of that. And that is genuinely the most effective way of identifying a, a crooked cat even today. Um, but the thing is that, you know, as I, as you also said, just noted, it's the pug mark doesn't help you uh, if you're going to kill the animal, right? So if you're hunting it, you can't go and assess the pug mark and then kill it. And you can't track it because especially leopards are hard to track, quite unlike tigers, where you can track them. Uh, but even there, it's not easy. Like tracking is very difficult. Um, but leopards are particularly hard to track, and especially in the mountains, right? In this very steep uh, terrain. So, you know, I mean, you might be able to un- to identify the, tiger, the leopard as the right one after you have killed it, but you can't do it before. So what is the way in which hunters most commonly work what they do is they of course try to do an analysis of pug marks but what they really follow are two things the first is what i call sort of the territorial thesis which is that they there is an assumption um and a right assumption that big cats are territorial animals and they will eventually return to the area in which they have recently hunted uh, you know an area that they think of as their terrain and they'll sort of come back to that and so what they do is that they typically go to the place where the re- most recent killing has happened and they check out the landscape and they set up machans or they stake the ground in that same general territory and then when uh sort of a leopard or the site a leopard or a tiger they assume there's an assumption that this is the same one and they kill it uh, because it's very hard to tranquilize or capture or you know to try to tranquilize them but that can go quite badly wrong and again um I haven't seen much capacity for this, much training for it, much of the equipment for it up in the in, in the Himalaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you typically have is hunting, which is, you know, again, deeply problematic, but that's the way it goes. So you try to kill the animal, assuming that it's the same one. But again, you will only know if it's the same one after the, the leopard or tiger is dead, right? Mm-hmm. But um, the thing which I think for me is really interesting and which is something that I've heard across hunters, conservationists, villagers, mountain people, uh, photographers, like just anybody who lives in the vicinity of big cats. And this is um, the talk of the eyes, and especially Mm -hmm. the eye lock, you know, when your eyes make contact with the tiger or the leopard's eye. And that moment is meant to be very special. And that moment is actually when any form of certain knowledge about this animal is actually related to you. So, for instance, uh, but what that eye lock does or what is that eye contact saying uh, is it varies by individuals. And there are no real theories on it. So, for instance, you know, um, there are some hunters and some so-called tiger experts like Valmik Thapar who are convinced that when you make eye contact, it is a sure shot sign that the big cat is a man-eater. Because in their opinion, that if the tiger looks back at you, it shows that it's not scared of humans, it's not scared of you, and it's actually sort of almost jeering at you. And Mm -hmm. that's a sure short sign that he or she is a crooked cat. But some of the other hunters I've worked with, as well as some of the sort of forest officials I've worked with, they say that actually when the the big cat looks right into your eye and it doesn't blink and it just sits there and doesn't do anything, that's a sign that actually it's innocent. Because if it was guilty then it would try to run away because it would be aware of the fact that what it's doing by hunting humans or attacking humans goes against the so-called law of nature and it would sort of run away, it would do something. So for them, it's a sign of innocence. So there's no real, like, you know, people say different things about it, but that eye lock is actually so important. And everyone I've spoken, like all the hunters I've interviewed, all the people I've spoken about it, they say that is the moment when you get to know whether it is 
this you know what is the nature of this beast like is it friendly is it not could it be the crooked cat could it not and that that is centered in all these accounts and you know there is absolutely no way within india's conservationist regime within the legal clauses bureaucratic documents all the talk of due process uh, you know this this very elaborate public maintenance of the facade of correct identification that there is space for taking this instinctive visceral affective momentary uh thing of what happens in that moment when you lock eyes with a tiger in the wild or with a leopard in the mountains there is no space for that right and again i mean to end with just the shane example you see how that that when the hunter says that now of course we hate that hunter and what he did was awful and you know the the, the toxicity of him is problematic but it is that he says that i can look into a manitas and i know what it is or it isn't that is mocked right and it it is jeered at almost it's sort of a mocking reference to it um and actually i mean in my experience that is that is frankly how a lot of the hunts and captures happen on the ground mm-hmm. i mean uh, it's funny that you brought up sherni because i will admit that after watching the film i actually looked for your name in the credits because i was like this has to like it cannot be that <laughs> entire film that is so similar to this book and i was just like surely they had like an anthropologist consultant on the film and uh, i know I, was, I, really, i really wish they had because then i would have told yeah. them do a few things exactly and i would have told them like the other my big other you know problem with that film is that they i mean this is the thing with you know which underlies crooked cats as well is that this overwhelming force of an exclusionary conservationism that is centered mm-hmm. on the life of protecting big cats right and that is centered in a particular developmentalist discourse and a way of imagining how you can manage and regulate the wild how you can protect animals and i think you know i'm really pushing against that and i i mean not me but i think my interlocutors and the stories that i have here a push against the ineffectiveness of it so it's this technocratic desire to make better to purify the conservationist regime this preservationist regime without taking into account other ways of knowing the non-human other right which are just sort of dismissed or as thought of as quaint way exactly um and i think i would have pushed for taking those maybe seriously yeah. so i do wish they had consulted me i know i really it just like seems like a lost opportunity on their part um <laughs> but yeah in a, in a different chapter you think more about the governance of big cats through the lens of petitions that were successful in demanding for the capture or the killing of big cats in Uttarakhand you argue that tracing uh, why certain petitions attain eff- efficacy makes it possible to pay attention to the specificity of relations between humans and big cats particularly in the age of anthropocene and climate change so can you say a little more about um, how and why you began to consider the petition so centrally in your analysis and the insights that that centering yields yes thank you so actually you know again the petition is linked to interestingly to this what we were just discussing uh, the identification and sort of governance of non-humans so again to go back to the winter of 2006 in gopeshwar uh, what i saw at the time was that um in the process through which the indian state can declare a specific big cat to be quote unquote a man eater which can then be captured or hunted down according to law um 
petitions play a very important role. So, you know, the I, I could see that the local state, you know, the district magistrate and the local forest officials were actually using petitions by uh, residents who were sort of petrified of this leopard and wanted her killed and captured as soon as possible. Um to pressure the the state hierarchy above them, you know, so they would send the petitions on to them. They would send faxes or photocopies of them and say, "Look, you know, these people are terrified. They're really angry with us. They, I'm really worried that there might be a breakdown of law and order. Uh, you know, that specter of law and order keeps coming up all the time, right, within mm-hmm. government offices." Um, and, you know, we need to do something. Please, can you give me a hunting permit? Can you give me the right to actually capture this highly protected animal? Because, uh, you know, big cats are, are protected by an extremely rigid and a very, very intense uh, legal regime. So that means you can't just go and kill one or you definitely or even capture one, right? It takes a lot of bureaucratic work to actually get to that point where you can do that officially, of course. Like illegally, a lot of other things happen where you, you know, killed on the sly or the poisoned on the sly, etc. But the state can't or doesn't publicly go through those motions. Um, so I sort of got interested in these petitions because I could see that they were being handed over to these officials and there was a lot of, you know, drama around it, like orchestrated drama uh, with processions and loudspeakers and dancing and, you know, the, the performance mm-hmm. that sort of went with it was quite uh, spectacular in many ways. So I sort of, uh, I was intrigued by that performance, of course, but I was also then went to the archives, the district archives, to look at these petitions. Uh, and they were sort of stacked together in these sort of fat files with the heading, Attacks by Wild Beasts in District Chamoli. Um, mm. And most of the petitions were actually, uh, the, some of them were about bears, you know, and they were about how bears are going mad, uh, that, that they're going mad because of the heat or because of something that's happening. And this... Uh, insanity of the bears is making them behave in highly unpredictable manners and they were like do something to you know do something are these bears are going mad they're going pagal you know and we don't understand it Uh, but maybe it's the heat maybe it's the lack of food you know Um, again like now reading back at them very much talking about all the things that we talk about under you know aspects related to climate change Uh, but again not in that language not in that discourse right Mm-hmm. But most of these petitions were centered on big cats. And the thing that I found really interesting in the petitions was, uh, and this was not just in Chamoli, but it was, I've seen this across different archives in, in Uttarakhand and the districts, as well as in Dehradun, where I spent a considerable a period of time in the forest, official, uh, forest officers' uh, archives, basically looking at petitions around big cats. And is the way in which they sort of, um, I guess the two or three things. One is that, the life that the big cat assumes in these petitions, right? It's like, these are not some sort of passive, scared little, cute little charismatic animals. They actually have a very powerful life in these petitions. You know, the language that's used to talk about them, their power, their capacity to act, uh, the agency, you know, we would keep talking about animal agency. There's like tons of animal agency here that you can almost jumping out of the petitions at you all the time. Um, and I was sort of, I found those really vivid and really powerful and as a different way of imagining the non-human again or thinking about what animals are or, you know, big cats are. And again, a very different discourse from the conservationist discourse, very different from, you know, talking about the beauty or the charisma uh, or talking about the need to protect them. Actually, they see them in very different kinds of beasts from the mainstream English language, middle class, upper class discourse that I was used to uh, of mm-hmm. conservation. Um the second thing I think was really the way in which they talk about the value of life uh, and, you know, whose life matters more. And 
it was this this comparison i see this across time and across the archives where they're constantly saying but tell me is it like do you value the life of this big cat more or of several humans right and what does the state say about the state what does it say about democracy what does it say about governance what does it say about you know really fundamental questions um would sort of recur in these petitions and as far as i can see it's not that they're consulting one another or really talking to one another it is something that comes up constantly in these conversations that what what is it and again we come back to the state right and again we come back to thinking about political power we start thinking about inequality we start thinking about demands for justice and demands to occupy this world or this land or this space or this country or this region here in this case um in a way that's equitable that where everybody can live but on terms of equality where we get justice for what happens so i sort of got really um i got i got pulled into this because i mean honestly that the most compelling I, i've worked you know in district arc- well in bureaucratic arcs for a long time for you know for this welfare scheme i looked at previously and for other things um but these were just the most compelling forms of uh government documents that i have ever seen i mean not that the government documents but documents within a governmental space that i have ever encountered and i i hope it's not because this is again a slightly exoticized subject of you know of tigers and leopards and you know beastly animals in deep dark <laughs> india but okay. it was because of the the ways in which they write about them the ways in which these animals come to life the way in which the actions are discussed the ways in which human actions are discussed um and that's why it sort of became it became really central to my to my wider argument i think on on non-human governance and thinking about the ways in which you know human governance and non-human governance are linked but also the ways in which they differ and what happens if we bring the animal into this how does it allow us to think about uh questions which i've been wrestling with even previously on state forms and state failure success on questions of justice and questions of equality on the idea of democracy as a functioning um way of living in in india uh, you know big question mark over that of course at this point um so it sort of brought me back into that and this this chapter in petitions along with the one on ids that we've just discussed previously on identifying big cats as well as sort of the the earlier chapter on you know and the introduction on you know what how do we understand them how do we govern them how do we regulate them how do we come to know these profoundly unknowable animals uh, and then how do we sort of actually go about trying to regulate uh, the way in which they live in this moment where they're becoming more and more threatening but also we have a duty of care as humans to protect them uh, from extinction like this very double edged uh, aspect to it um mm-hmm. it sort of came together to me and uh, and this actually comes together in one of the core arguments and something that for me is very very important uh for this book and this is that you know in a lot of the discussions that we see on the climate crisis or we see on the ecological collapse uh, there is a way in which um these sort of more mundane and the more sort of gritty uh, nitty gritty of the everyday state of you know these sort of grumbles about corruption about bureaucratic inertia about state violence about injustice about caste about gender about location this sort of written out of these big questions of of climate change of you know of ecological collapse of the anthropocene and something that i want to argue in this book and something i really want to push for is that it is untenable to separate these domains out anymore it is untenable in uh, political discussions when it comes to conservation 
where you somehow say this is the climate and this is the ecological and this is the state and bureaucracy and the politics and it's different. But it's also uh, untenable when it comes to the way in which academic knowledge is produced. So the ways in which anthropology, for instance, as a discipline functions, where you have something like multi-species ethnography, which is largely kept apart uh, or at a slight distance from, say, the anthropology of bureaucracy in the state. And I want right. to argue that th- this is not tenable. I want to argue that, you know, questions like uh, these profound questions of endangerment or extinction of vulnerable species like tigers, lions and leopards cannot and should not be divorced from serious considerations of the state, of politics at local, regional, national and international levels and the corresponding governance regimes. Yeah, and I think you do that really well in the book. And that's one of the reasons I thought it was a very refreshing um, bridge between interspecies ethnography and postcolonial, um, yeah, political anthropology of the state. Uh, but especially because I know the latter better, I just thought it was such an interesting uh, way to think about the state and everyday life and how that links to um, conversations uh, about the Anthropocene. So, yeah, I think the book is in a way that bridge. So I'm really glad that it exists in the world. Um, but as as an urban sociologist myself, I actually really loved your chapter on big cats and big cities. You analyze the arrival and movements of big cats in the urban landscapes of Mumbai, Shimla and Dehradun. And you think through the varying responses to the presence of these feline creatures in each city. I would love for you to speak a little bit about the kinds of variations there were in each city and what accounts for these divergent responses. Yeah, thank you, Sneha. So, you know, I mean, this was one of the big sort of questions also when I was doing fieldwork, because as the project sort of emerged or as it took form in a different way, um, I found that there was, uh, I I did fieldwork in Mumbai, Shimla and Dehradun, as you say, and I found very stark differences in the way in which uh, people's, or, you know, at least the people I spoke to, the way in which they responded to the presence of uh, leopards, which are sort of quite common in all three of the cities now. Um, so, for instance, in Dehradun, you know, the moment you see sort of a leopard, uh, or especially if any kind of encounter happens, any bloody encounter happens between leopards and humans, there are immediate calls to kill the animal or capture it, but largely mm. kill it. Um, in Shimla, which is, you know, very close to Dehradun, actually, physically, and the adjoining state of Himachal Pradesh, um, you have uh, people are just quite sanguine about living with leopards, you know, um, I mean, there are some differences there which are quite class-based where it is evident that uh, the newer entrants to Shimla, you know, the sort of this new urban middle and upper class who go and build retirement homes or, you know, are living in these slightly more posh parts of Shimla have a slightly different relationship to leopards because also, you know, of the way that they're seeing them, etc. But they're not that happy about it. But again, there isn't this like strident call for being like, kill it, capture it, do something to it immediately. Most of the people are just like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, I go to work this morning and I saw this leopard and he went his way. I went my way. End of story. That's it. Um, Mumbai, it's very interesting because it has had like its peaks of conflict in around in Gurigaon, in the Sanjay Gandhi National Park in and around that this colony, mm-hmm. RA colony, but also just in that area. Um, there have been there have been uh, sort of periods where there have actually been quite a lot of um well, quote-unquote conflict, but like attacks by leopards and humans. Um, and then it has dipped. And I have found that the 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 rise and the drop of that really interesting to sort of, you know, study, uh, to say that why does it suddenly go up and then it drops? Uh, whereas in Dehradun, it's actually just going up and up and up and, you know, it's getting uglier uh, by the day. 
Um, and again, you know, as with all the other chapters, I don't have a theory on why. And I don't think that we can have a particular theory on why there is a difference. But what I explore here are things, uh, different aspects that I think I would like to suggest, I speculate, uh, might be leading to these responses, to these varying responses to the presence of the very same animal in, in an urban setting. Um, so one of the things I really talk about is sort of ecological histories and the lived geographies of, of the three cities that I researched. Um, and I am particularly interested sort of in, um, say, the colonial past of some of these places and in in particular in the presence of particular kinds of actors, uh, individual human actors, as well as actually non-human actors in terms of famous leopards that you might remember or a you know, famous non-human animal of another form that you might remember, um, and what the influence has been on that city. So if I could just sort of, uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I know I've been talking for a long time, so I don't want to go on. Mm-hmm. I'll give a brief example, which is that, say, in Dehradun, which is the city I know best and which has quite a antagonistic relationship with leopards, which is surprising given that, you know, Uttarakhand has a very large number of leopards and tigers, probably the largest in, in India of leopards for sure. Uh, it has several, you know, forest uh, uh, national parks, etc., all around it, etc. You would think that they wouldn't be so uh, so antagonistic towards leopards or tigers, given that, you know, those who pride themselves on actually housing these national parks, but they have this very antagonistic relationship with them. I, I look at a lot of that actually in... Uh, one particular individual, this is uh, Jim Corbett, who was a famous British hunter turned conservationist who sort of idolized in the state, you know, uh, the hunters idolize him, the forest uh, department idolizes him. India's first tiger sanctuary, the first national park, the Jim Corbett National Park was named after him because he's such a hero. Of course, he's written the most famous books on man eaters uh, in India. Um, you know, I mean, sort of... Everyone knows him, even here in England, when I mention him, so many people have heard of him because they've read his books, etc. So he's he's this, but he's this overwhelming figure in Dehradun, uh, in Uttarakhand. And I feel like a lot of the practices that we see in, in Dehradun, Uttarakhand actually mimic him. They they take on his practices. They want to sort of, you know, people want to be little Corbett's. They want to be known as the modern day Jim Corbett, which basically involves hunting, which basically involves a particular masculine orientation. It involves a particular way of being and, you know, conquering space, etc. I also think that places like Dehradun were the center of of the sort of the ordering and the rationalization of the colonial uh, state. You know, so you have the Forest Research Institute there, you have the Survey of India there, you have the, after independence, you had the Wildlife Institute of India put up there. Um, it's it's a place which is about order and, you know, nature is separated out from that which is not nature. And so there is a, there's a particular culture at work, there, including a state culture of managing big cats. Um, and I think that that's actually been quite important. In a place like Shimla, what is really interesting to me is that every time I would go and ask people about the leopards, they'd be like, no, these leopards are not a problem. You know, the real problem here are the monkeys. And I'm like, what? The leopards are not a problem, the monkeys are a problem. And they're like, yes, because there are all these monkeys that have come here and, you know, they sort of come and attack us and they do this and they do that. And there was this whole like monkey problem. Like it was the monkeys that had a real problem. And, you know, and the monkey and the leopard was just very minor. Like it's just something over there. And, you know, I interviewed this guy who's the one person I know who actually did have, quote unquote, some sort of an attack by leopard. So I went to interview because I was very curious to know what happened to him. 
and he told me what happened he said that he was coming home from work one night and it was quite dark and he was taking a shortcut through the forest to go to his house and he had an mp3 player on because he was listening to music and in the dark and because he was not paying attention to his surroundings he tripped over this uh, leopard who was napping in the bushes and he fell down and he said the leopard got up and was really scared and it sort of just you know lashed out and uh, and it scratched him a bit um but it didn't do anything and he said you know i felt so bad because that poor leopard was more scared of me than i was of him and he just ran away and he very much said it was my fault that i should have seen where i was going because this is his territory he sleeps here we know he lives here but i am the one who fell over him poor thing if i was sleeping and someone you know heavy suddenly dropped on me even i'd get angry uh, so he had this completely different narrative and i think that and but then he also was like but you know the real problem is the monkey and i was like it was like it blew my mind i was like oh yeah the real problem is the monkey's like yeah you know any time i go on mall road like he comes and snatches what i have and they so they come together as a as a clique and all that so i found that really sort of interesting in the ways in which as a space and you know hunting is very very rarely used there they they sometimes set up cages to like trap leopards that have been uh killing uh, pet dogs or you know that are sighted too often around say a school with children in them etc Um, but they don't actually. Even the first department is very hands off in the way in which they deal with it, uh, and they don't really. They don't really. I mean, it's also easier for them because they are not facing the same outrage from its citizenry in the way that you are in Dehradun. You know, which again is very interesting to see the difference here. And Mumbai, what is you know, I think for me, Mumbai is in a way probably the most instructive because what you have there is. Um, this very powerful uh, way of community mobilization where you have a variety of people including students including conservationists including the forest department coming together to work with uh, people who live in and around sanjay gandhi national park to sort of sensitize them to what it means to co inhabit the space right like what Uh, and it talks about building respect and not being scared of them and you know staying away or doing certain things like not letting your your pet dog out at night because that's a time that they're looking for prey or cleaning up certain spaces so they don't come for foraging for food or if you see one what you do etc um i find that that work this this organization called mumbaikers for sgnp uh as well as you know the forest department is also run other sort of programs over there there are some very charismatic individuals who have been part of it including a very charismatic forest officer himself who sort of set up a lot of these outreach work um and then you you know you have these celebrities all these bollywood celebrities like hema malini and amitabh bachchan and all of them who uh sort of are also um <laughs> very much for the leopards and all of them so this this is sort of a lot of work which is happening over there uh to to change the narrative around mumbai so a phrase that i hear very often in mumbai is that we have to learn to live with leopards you know mm-hmm. and uh that isn't something i've heard elsewhere and i i and i can see that the work that has been the sort of social political community work around mumbai around that has really changed uh the way in which people regard leopards and the way in which they sort of work with them so i mean you know I, again th- there isn't an overarching argument but i do think that space is very important here and we come to space uh, exactly as you said as an urban sociologist you know we come to it historically these are classed spaces there, there is the particular ecological histories that they have the particular colonial histories that they co- follow but they also have like post colonial you know uh, ways in which that space has been sort of uh, reframed or reimagined um we also have i think individuals and here of course individuals as in charismatic human individuals but also sort of famous individual big cats 
who mm-hmm. have their own idiosyncrasies, who have their own characters, which have helped change our imaginaries uh, or congeal imaginaries of our non-human urban co-residents in these spaces. And th- th- I think that accounts a lot for, for the differences uh, across the three. But again, I think, you know, uh, it's important to sort of put a caveat here, which is that, that, that I have also seen over the last 15 years how quickly things can change. You know, so in Dehradun, where when I was doing a fieldwork from 2006 to 2008 in Uttarakhand, I didn't, there weren't really accounts of uh, leopard human um, interactions or encounter, these kind of beastly encounters. But I've seen that in the last five, six years, it's been going up dramatically. Um, and, you know, again, I think this is absolutely another um, indication of the climate crisis and, you know, what it means to be living in this moment. But it also, uh, uh, the way in which humans have, have responded to them, you know, through hunting, through more and more punitive measures, through a particular kind of uh, sharpening this divide between human land and non-human land at a time when when that category, I think, doesn't really apply anymore. You know, these categories that we, we thought we took for granted do not have the same salience anymore in this moment. But, mm-hmm. but they're sharpening that. In Mumbai, as I said, you can see that there have been high peaks of uh, of conflict and then it goes down dramatically because of the social, political, you know, community-based work, actual active work that's been done to change the narrative around living with leopards. Um, I was chuckling a little bit because I do empathize with the people living in Shimla because I've been harassed by monkeys for very long in Chennai or because there were too many of them on my campus. So <laughs> just like, you know, I might I would have preferred a leopard to, to the endless monkey harassment that I faced through college. I'm very traumatized and I think I yeah, I am really, really stressed out by monkeys <laughs> whenever I see them now. Yeah, I think we're gonna meet more monkeys in Singapore. <laughs> this is quite a big problem that you do, right? So they're following you everywhere, Sneha. So one of the questions that I will have to ask, even though I realized I've just bombarded you with far too many questions, is that is about the cuteness of a tiger in a in the Delhi name in the Delhi Zoo named Vijay. Um, in chapter three, you take a biographical look at Vijay, this tiger in Delhi Zoo, and you ask how and why some animals become charismatic and cute over others. So I would love it if you could share with our listeners the story of Vijay. And in particular, why does thinking about cuteness in the context of crookedness matter to the way we think about human and non-human relationships? Yeah, thanks, Neha. So, you know, I think, as I said earlier, like something that's very important uh, that I found actually to be very important and very instructive as I was researching this book was how important um, animal lives or like animal biographies are, you know, of a particular named individual, or, you know, it doesn't have to be named, but one individual and how people relate their story through over the life and death or over the life in certain cases. Um, even in, as I said, in the in the chapter on, on space, it's very clear to me that actually certain charismatic leopards have had a very strong imprint on how you relate to other leopards or how you relate to the species as a whole. Um, and so, you know, the, the the cute killer, the Vijay story was actually sort of interesting. So in um, let me just recount what happened and then I can talk about why it became uh, a part of this book and why I think how it contributes to it. So obviously, in the first way, it contributes is that it's about one one big cat. And this is a white tiger called Vijay, who is an inmate of the Delhi Zoo. And in uh, September 2014, um I think 23rd September 2014, if I'm not mistaken, a young man called Maksud 
Pardesi entered the enclosure in which Vijay and other two, three other white tigers were there. Um, and, you know, we don't know why Maksud entered it, but he sort of managed to jump into the enclosure somehow. And uh, this this whole encounter between Maksud and Vijay was filmed on amateur sort of on phones, etc., and is now freely available on YouTube. You can go and see it there. They're about like, you know, 2.5 million views last I checked. Um, and uh, basically what you see in that video is you see this young man, Maksud, sort of sitting on his haunches, uh, sort of in front and Vijay is regarding him quite closely and Maksud is sort of almost flapping him away you know he's making this sort of like you try to gesture at a fly like you're flapping it away he's making this this gesture towards Vijay but Vijay is sort of not doing anything but he's kind of curious he's like who is this what is this and you know he's looking at him like a big with this sort of puzzlement of a big cat um what you also hear is that you can hear just very faintly in the background you can hear that um, the the zookeeper is shouting at Vijay, saying, Vijay, move away. He's saying, Hajja, Vijay, Hajja, move away, Vijay. And then, unfortunately, what you also see is that the onlookers, the other visitors to the zoo, start pelting Vijay with stones and start shouting at him. The, you know, they're throwing things at Vijay, obviously to aid Maksud, this young man who's there. Um, but what basically happens is that Vijay sort of gets, you know, he gets... Uh, he, he seems to, I mean, this is all me just reading this video, right? You might read it differently. Uh, but Maksud, but Vijay gets sort of like, what he does is he picks up Maksud by his neck, almost like, you know, you would see a cat picking up a little kitten um, uh, to take Maksud further into the enclosure. So he gets away from these humans who are throwing things at Vijay and shouting at him, like screaming at him, saying, get away, get away, stop, you know, they're telling him to stop. And then we don't know what happens because uh, both Vijay and Maksud are out of the frame. But what we subsequently hear from the zoo is that Maksud tragically died. Um, Mm -hmm. The zoo authorities, when they issued that statement, were very clear in saying that Vijay did not try to eat him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was basically in this moment in which Maksud was picked up and taken there by his neck that, uh, you know, that he died, unfortunately. Now, this incident, which is now famous as the Delhi Zoo incident, sort of uh, exploded on the scene in many ways, right? So you suddenly started having all these petitions from uh, from people in Delhi and, you know, basically conservationists again coming out and saying that, uh, preemptively saying that Vijay is innocent. He's not a killer. He's not a man-eater. He's, he's an innocent tiger and he should not be put down just because unfortunately and tragically, Maksud died. Um, you see that, you know, there were these sort of, all, there was a huge amount of work that sort of suddenly exploded on the social, um, on social media in, in actually on the streets of Delhi, etc., to preemptively protect Vijay. Um, the zoo authorities too said that, you know, we have taken Vijay to a separate enclosure and we are, we are looking at him to see whether this has had any adverse effect on him. Is he getting depressed? Is he unhappy? You know, we're keeping him under observation. Um, mm-hmm. And then after some time, they issued a statement saying that we've kept Vijay under observation and he seems just fine. So we're returning him to the white tiger enclosure. Um, mm-hmm. And anyway, so there was a lot of sort of, uh, you know, galvanizing of action around uh, around Vijay to protect him, which at some level is not surprising because, again, something that, you know, you see with big cats, not just in India, but of course globally, is that what overwhelms you, what overwhelms everything is this regime, this, this again, a very class regime, like a middle class elite regime um, to protect them. 
and mm. you can see that really comes kicks into action very quickly to protect vijay preemptively though there's no no one is talking about putting vijay down because of what happened uh, but you know pe- there's a preemptive thing to protect vijay um at the same time what i also found interesting is that maksud pardesi who's this young man i mean it's tragic that he died at this point you suddenly start seeing all these obituaries around him you start he becomes someone that i suddenly know through through the writing on him you know uh, through his life story you know his tragic the tragicness of it all because his family said that he was sort of obsessed with the white tigers and he would apparently go every day to the zoo to stare mm. at them um he, you know he was apparently married and his wife was pregnant with their first child and you know he came from a sort of a a very disprivileged background he apparently suffered from poor mental health i mean the all these things about maksud that i sort of get to know because he has been killed by vijay and so i sort of became you know obviously interest, interested in in this and i thought that uh, i'd go to the zoo and so this happened in, the, in september 2014 um uh, in 2015 um uh, so i went in the winter of september 2014 where it was very clear that vijay was a superstar he had become a celebrity overnight so the zoo authorities themselves say that for that year uh, coming after this this incident uh, they had 2 lakh or 200000 more visitors than they normally do and they all wanted to go to the white tiger enclosure and they all wanted to go and see vijay and i mean i think there were three or four white tigers sitting there and frankly they all look exactly the same to me <laughs> but you know speaking of eating big cats it's like a white tiger is a white tiger right but there was um, they all wanted to see vijay and so you know when i went to the zoo i remember the zoo the the guy who was um, some zoo attendant or whatever he was there he was like uh, everyone went up to him and they were like is that vijay is that vijay and he was like no vijay is not out yet and we were like oh my god when is vijay coming and you know and so we were all waiting expectantly for vijay to come out and then a a tiger appeared and he's like oh that's vijay that's vijay has come and it, and there was like applause and everyone was so excited to see vijay um and then there was this um the zoo shop um basically the most important the 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 soft toy that was the most popular in the zoo shop especially at moments like valentine's day uh, but also otherwise was the white tiger soft toy and the white tiger soft toy when i went and interviewed the zoo shop guy said he is we don't call it the white tiger anymore we just call it a vijay mm-hmm. so even the, the the soft toy became a vijay right and so they were all vijays and he's like everybody was coming and saying can you give me a vijay because i want to give it to my romantic partner i want to give it to my child i want to give it as a gift to my boss i want to give a vijay as a gift and anyway so then i saw a little boy uh, standing outside vijay's enclosure and he was holding uh, a vijay like a white tiger soft toy in his hand and you know he did this whole like adorably hilarious performance i wish i had been able to film it but it was just so funny um he did this thing where he pretended he's maksud and and the white tiger i mean the soft toy is vijay and but in his rendering in front of vijay's enclosure he this young boy manages to overpower vijay and he emerges mm-hmm. victorious and vijay doesn't hurt him he doesn't hurt vijay so it's a complete mm-hmm. reenactment of what he must have seen on the on youtube uh, a million times and except that the the ending is a happy ending it's a reversal of it because no one is hurt and so you know we were all gathered around him and we sort of applauded and then i spoke to his mom who said that you know this boy is obsessed with vijay and he wants to come all the time and see him 
and mm. then we see Vijay, not the other white tigers, but Vijay, and that's why there's that man, you know, the zoo guy who hangs around, who tells us who's Vijay and who's not Vijay, uh, which is also fascinating. Uh, you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then I went and asked him, and I said, "But why do you like him so much? You know, he's just like the other tigers." And he was like, "He's so cute. Vijay is so cute." And I don't know whether he was talking about the softer or the actual tiger. I think he was actually talking about the tiger, tiger Vijay. Mm-hmm. And it was just like that sort of stayed with me. And I was like, you know, but what is it that made Vijay cute? Um, and I think what made Vijay cute was the fact that he killed a man. Inadvertently, mm. uh, you know, he didn't mean to. And of course, he didn't, uh, you know, even if we say he didn't mean to. Uh, though again, we're taking, of course, the zoo's word for it, so to say. Um, right. It, it was interesting to me that a killer becomes cute, you know, that you can have something like a cute killer because the other white tigers are not considered cute in the same way as Vijay is, you know, and you can see that in the commodification of Vijay, also the way the zoo, the Delhi zoo has capitalized on Vijay's fame, you know, um, they basically like, for instance, when Vijay became, as the Delhi zoo put it, a proud papa of four new baby cubs. Uh, mm-hmm. This was huge news, you know. It was in the newspapers that uh, this is a few years later, subsequent to the 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 tragic death of Maksud. Um, the, everyone was like, "Oh wow, which has had four babies." They're not talking about like the other white tigers becoming proud mamas or proud papas. Only Vijay. Um, when Vijay turned ten, there was a big birthday party for him in the zoo. Mm-hmm. And these school kids were sort of shipped in and they cut a big white tiger cake and there were these banners which said happy birthday Vijay outside the, you know, the tiger enclosure thing and this, this star power of Vijay is like even a few years later I mean I think it might wane with time people might forget about it though there are other ways in which Vijay has become famous most famously by appearing as the backdrop to a scene in, uh, in Masan the film where uh, you see that the two protagonists are you know sort of nervously examining each other in the cd motel before they go on to have a sexual encounter and there's the news of vijay and the death of maksud playing in the background of the television um which to me is quite striking so that's one way in which he lives on through the Masan, but of course through all the white tiger vijays and the birthday party and you know the way in which the zoo also plays up a celebrity um so i sort of became interested in it it made me think about what is a cute animal and i started reading cute studies we, uh, I and uh, my colleague Diana Chua, we had a panel at the AAA on cute animals, which was real fun uh, in terms of thinking about communication as a process. And um, so I became, you know, and I mean, it was clear to me that perhaps what, I mean, I would argue that what made Vijay cute was that he was considered profoundly innocent, you know, that mm-hmm. he was born and bred in captivity. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know his own strength. He was just examining Maksud, it is the other people who are shouting at him, who, you know, throwing things at him that actually pushed him to do what he did. But he's entirely innocent. Um, and the fact that he then went on to have lots of cute babies somehow makes him innocent as well. Uh, and then I guess the other thing which makes him cute is that it's the freakish nature of what happened. I mean, this was a freak incident, right? You don't... Right. Uh, I mean, again, having said that, you know, when I started reading into it, I was amazed that there are many, many such incidences of people entering enclosures and either dying or getting very badly hurt, uh, injured or mauled by animals, especially tigers, as it turns out, given the national obsession with tigers in India. Um, It's happened in Guwahati, it's happened in Alipur, it's happened in Lucknow, it's happened in lots of other zoos. But it doesn't get the same attention as when it happens in Delhi in the historic old fort uh, where the zoo is housed, I guess. So I think it was the freakish nature of it as well as sort of the slightly, you know, there is this argument that the cute and the monstrous are adjacent categories, that they share something. And there was something 
that freakishness, the innocence, the monstrous nature of this incident sort of made Vijay cute. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things which I want to think about in this book and through these stories of big cats is that what makes a crooked cat crooked, right? It isn't just the fact that he or she kills an anim- uh, a human or is is doing funny things like coming and attacking you randomly. There mm-hmm. is something in the way in which we come to understand them and the actions and the frames that we give them, the spaces in which it happens, the right. through which we see them, the yeah. people who are relating the stories, that lends crookedness to, that makes a big cat crooked. So for me, yeah. like, I'm interested in cutification. I'm interested in how an animal comes to be cute, especially an animal that is a big cat that has killed a human because most of the other big cats I know who've killed humans or I've seen who have killed humans are are, uh, are considered crooked, are considered man-eaters, they're considered dangerous. They're definitely not considered cute. So I think it was for me, this, 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 is, this piece is very much about thinking about different constructions of the very same beast, even when the beast does the very same thing that in, in another space, another time with a different person might have made them uh, monstrous or might have made them crooked. But here they become cute and they actually are commodified and they become celebrities and they bring huge amounts of revenue to the Delhi Zoo. So yeah. I, that's where it stands within the wider framing of the book. I mean, it's it's all very interesting. and I, I, I love this chapter. And I also thought about how um, the enclosure, you know, like uh, it almost seems like a stage, right? So like um, you're like onlookers. I, I often think about it as like us being an audience. Um, so I also wonder how maybe the whole thing transpiring in an enclosure lends itself, uh, it lends it a certain kind of distance, which almost seems like cinematic, uh, which aids in the consumption of this encounter as as being almost too spectacular to be real, you know. And uh, in that sense, um, changes the narrative of Vijay as being somehow like a star, like a star, right? Like and it mirrors that cinematic appeal of Vijay precisely because it almost feels like you're watching something unfold that's not quite. Uh, immediate, uh, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. That's a beautiful reading. I think you're absolutely right about the cinematic nature of it and the yeah. star You know, it's like this is Shah Khan and Dawn or something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems a little bit distanced because it's an enclosure of sorts and you're watching it together. So there's this collective effervescence of the audience and, you know, like there's a lot going on there in, in terms of the setting of the scene, which I thought was, uh, was gave me something to think about. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a beautiful reading of it. You're absolutely right. I would completely <laughs> concur with your reading. <laughs> but uh, this was such a pleasure, like uh, such a pleasure to talk with you about the book. And the book really is um, is excellent. And I'm sure it's going to be widely appreciated and applauded as it as it should be. But before we end, I would love to know what you're working on now and what can we expect to read from you in the near future? Thank you so much, Neha, for your very kind words and for your very close reading of the book. I, I really sort of appreciate it. Um, what am I working on currently? It's, well, it's sort of an extension of this, but in a... So I think, um, you know, as we discussed previously, I'm sort of interested in the method through which you put this story together, right? Like, how does this beastly tale come together? How does it help us make sense of things like the climate crisis or the Anthropocene or the nature of the state in India or of governance regimes, etc.? I'm really interested in this moment of thinking about the place of anthropology as a discipline and particularly ethnography as a method um, in this in the state of 
the climate emergency that we're in right now. Um, mm-hmm. So this comes from like two places. I think one is just uh, the fact that for Crooked Cats, I read a lot of other disciplines for the first time in my life. I really had to engage with, you know, political theory and history in ways that I hadn't previously. Um, mm-hmm. And I got really interested in thinking about how different disciplines will have to, well, all dif- disciplines, I think, will have to change what they are, how they construct knowledge, what their method is, if they want to engage with the climate crisis squarely, right? I, I do think that this is a moment of reckoning for the academy. I think it's a moment of reckoning for how we produce knowledge within the social sciences and humanities and how we respond to to the climate crisis, which is an overwhelming threat. It's an overwhelming, you know, apocalyptic sense of being in this moment, right? Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm sort of interested in thinking about method and the climate crisis. And I'm, I want to think about how how what is the role of ethnography in this like you know as i said i really like you know in the early 2000s when i was doing you know long time back when i was doing my master's at day school of economics that's when i really fell in love with anthropology as a discipline because of the fundamental method that underpins it uh, to mm-hmm. back to your first question yeah um and in this moment i think you know i'm now really i'm watching with absolute horror what is happening in Uttarakhand right now, you know, with disaster after disaster, including the disaster in Chamoli district where, you know, I've spent a year of my life uh, earlier this year. Uh, but not just that, but like constant, you know, manifestations of the climate crisis, which is very much there and evident. And of course, these cats, I read them as a very sharp manifestation of it. The change in human relations with non-human others is something that I've been seeing for the last 15 years while I've been working there. Um, you know, also in some of the narratives which are coming out, which are talking about death, which are talking about dying, which are talking about ending, which talk about predation that are sort of echoing through the Indian Himalaya. Um, I'm interested in sort of picking up these knowledge forms again and thinking about how we can uh, we can center them within things like climate science or within, frankly, policymaking. Um, and again, so I don't have quite yet, I'm not able to articulate this uh, coherently as a particular project. Um, I'm, I'm sort of co-director of a research network at Oxford, which is entitled Climate Crisis Thinking in the Humanities and Social Sciences. And in mm-hmm. a way, I think that uh, that is that title tells us a bit because I'm, I'm interested in thinking about how we rethink method, how we rethink what we do. You know, we, we think more deeply about uh, what is the impact that academic writing has on the world? How can we shape it? How can we change um, things? You know, how do we respond to this moment? And how do we respond urgently in this moment is something that I'm thinking about. Um, and I think this work will again be centered in uh, in the Himalaya and uh, particularly around, uh, you know, these sort of disasters and the sort of the everyday life of the climate crisis that I see there. Um, but I'm I'm not, I'm not fully certain what form it'll take, but I think that's what I plan to do over this, over the future. And I have to say, you know, very honestly, like the last year and a half after I sent this book off uh, last April at the early lockdown in, in in England, I mean, I've just been paralyzed by by the pandemic, by the horror of being a migrant far away from home, you know, living here, but also by the horror of what happened in the UK, but also especially in India, especially in the second wave. You know, I know we've all suffered deep personal losses. Um, it's just been, I, I mean, it's just been such a difficult time for everyone, uh, especially back home in India, that I feel kind of paralyzed almost, you know. Yeah. But I take this paralysis of thought, I take this 
this inaction as also symptomatic of of the climate crisis and of this pandemic um okay. and what it's doing to us and i want to i want to sort of work through it so i think in the future you're going to see um i i hope you will see uh more public facing writing and more writing on uh on method and anthropology uh in the time of the climate emergency yeah i mean uh, thanks for such an honest um reflection on how the pandemic has impacted your own yeah ability to to not just write but to just to be right like so far away from uh from one's loved ones and yeah i mean I, i'm looking forward to reading everything that you write i i've always been a big fan of your work and uh, paper tiger was really instrumental in me thinking about uh, ethnography of the state in particular in my own work and you know and this book has just been such a pleasure to read even though i don't quite work on uh, on the themes that the book covers explicitly at least not right now but who knows in the future sure um but yeah thanks so much for joining me today and again i had had such a such a nice time talking with you and uh, take care and stay safe and good luck with everything that you're doing moving forward thank you so much neha for your incredible reading um for these really kind comments and i feel so privileged to have been able to talk to you about crooked cats and i really appreciate the care with which uh, you read the book and you know uh, and just giving me the platform to talk about it here so thank you so much for that